Uh, we have, for the last several months, been working our way through Paul's first canonical letter to the Corinthians. And today we find ourselves in chapter 7, in which Paul begins to address some practical matters that the Corinthian church has actually written to ask him about. That's where we find ourselves this morning. So let's go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 1. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, in this moment, I speaking for each individual in this room. I'm asking for your help. That you would help me to avoid pointing an accusing finger at somebody else without first applying your word to myself. I'm asking for your help that you would prevent me from explaining away the things that you've clearly said in your word. I'm asking for your help in strengthening me to walk in patience and forgiveness and purity. And Father, this morning we all are asking for your help in lifting up the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ who is Lord over all things, even this very personal, very sensitive, often very painful area of sex in marriage. God, we need your merciful character. We need your patient, loving kindness this morning. We ask that you would teach us so that we might enjoy walking in covenant love with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite games from childhood was introduced to me at recess on a day when the weather was bad and we were not allowed to play outside. The game was called Whisper Down the Lane. I think most people call it Telephone. Most of you know the game. One person comes up with a, a short sentence and whispers that sentence to her neighbor. And then that person whispers it to the person next to him and so on and so forth until it gets to the last person in the group. And the message is transformed into something completely ridiculous because what we often hear people saying is perhaps different from what they are actually saying. Did you know that the first game of telephone was actually played in the Garden of Eden and described for us in Genesis chapter 3? God had told the man, don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. But by the time that message went from Adam to his wife and from his wife to the serpent who was interacting with Eve, the message was ever so slightly twisted. 
God said, Eve told the serpent, you shall not eat the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Did you notice the subtle difference? But it was just enough of an opening for Satan to slide in with a deceptive invitation to disobey the word of God. In our text today, it's possible that the Corinthian believers were also playing a game of telephone, perhaps some of them at least. Uh, They realized that God did not permit sexual immorality, and they had learned that Paul, the guy who planted their church a few years prior, was himself committed to the single life, to a celibate life, and on that basis, they may have concluded that God does not want anybody to have sex at any time at all. It's even possible based on what we read in the rest of chapter 7, that some people in the church were actually arguing that Christians should divorce their spouse and live as celibate people for the duration of their time on earth. And I imagine that for each of these positions, they argued, this is the will of God, and they based it on what they imagined the character of God to be. What they were doing is they're imagining God to be more restrictive than he actually is. See, throughout human history, there have been two basic views on human sexuality. On the one hand, a lot of people think that sex is just another appetite. It's kind of like the appetite that we have for food or for sleep. Remember, Paul had to deal with that one in chapter 6. People were saying, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. Like, hey, if you are hungry for this or that experience, then just go for it. Just uh, do whatever tastes good and seems to satisfy the physical desires that you have. It's all good. Now, most people are aware that that way of looking at the topic of sexuality is contrary to the Bible. I think even most people who are not familiar with the Bible understand that that view of sex is not scriptural. So then they go and they make the opposite mistake, and this is the second prevalent view of sexuality throughout history. They reach the conclusion that all sex is kind of dirty and immoral and just sort of a necessary evil. In antiquity, a lot of people thought this way because they thought anything having to do with the body, with physical life, was evil. And some people even today think this way or at least feel this way. Maybe some of you feel this way because for you, the topic of sex has always been associated with evil and wickedness because of your choices or because of the choices of someone else. You can't even think about it without feeling dirty and gross. Nowadays, of course, as Tim Keller pointed out in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, a third view has edged out the other two in the world, namely the view that sex is just the way that I express my true identity as a person. Like if you really want to know who I am, I've got to look at my sexual desires. That's who I am. It's more than just an appetite. It's the most important part of my identity. And the Corinthians, of course, were struggling with all of this. Some were taking liberties that they shouldn't be taking. Others were teaching that sex is dirty. Both types were basing their views on what they believed about God. And Paul learns about this because the Corinthians asked him about it. So the entirety of chapter 7 is devoted to answering their questions. Well, today what we're going to see is that unlike the mainstream culture in Corinth that viewed sex as just a physical appetite, unlike the ascetic philosophers who thought that sex was dirty, unlike the sexual revolutionaries in our day who think that sex is the primary way of self-expression, Paul is going to express something, excuse me, very radical. Sex is a gift. Sex is A gift. It's not an animal appetite. It's not a necessary evil. It's not primarily a form of self-expression. Sex within the context of marriage is a gift. Now, I'm aware that for many of you, it may not feel that way, even if you're married. A lot of people struggle in this very personal, very emotionally charged area of life. In fact, by show of hands, how many... I'm just... I'm totally kidding. (laughs) Just making sure that you're awake... Judging by the laughter, okay, I think you conclude, can conclude that you're not alone if you've struggled in this area. 
In all seriousness, though, though, it's possible to see both singleness and marriage and even intimacy within the covenant of marriage as the gift it was intended to be. Sex is a gift, and Paul's going to communicate that in basically three ways. First of all, he's going to communicate that abstinence in marriage is a danger. Secondly, intimacy in marriage is a duty. And then thirdly, Mutual ownership in marriage is a delight. And we'll talk about each of these in turn. Notice with me in the first place that abstinence in marriage is a danger. Abstinence in marriage is a danger. That is, if you're married, it's extremely dangerous to avoid having sex with your spouse. If you abstain from sex in marriage, you are running some very serious spiritual risks. So let's get into the text, and you'll see exactly what I mean. Uh, The chapter starts out with a quotation from the Corinthian believers. Literally, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Obviously, that word touch is euphemistic language. Touch means more than just touch, and that's why if you have a modern English translation, they've probably uh, reworded it. To say, like mine does, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Specifically, some of the Corinthians had embraced the prevalent view in Roman society that that sexual relations within marriage should be for the sole purpose of having legitimate children. This was very common in Roman Corinth. That was a normal way of thinking. The average Corinthian resident would have slept with his wife only for the purpose of having legitimate children. As you know, uh, many marriages in antiquity were arranged by the parents, and and perhaps that that love and that romance was not there in the relationship and was never cultivated. And so it was very normal in that culture to only sleep with one's spouse in order to have legitimate children. The wife would be expected to remain chaste at all other times, and the husband would be expected to go out and fulfill his sexual desires Uh, with prostitutes. Greek society was even stricter than Roman society if you were a married woman, and it seems as though some of the Corinthians had sort of taken Paul's strictures on sexual immorality, like what the Bible says, we're not allowed to commit fornication, and combined that with the prevalent view from the, the Roman colony in which they were living to say that sex in marriage ought to be just for having children. In other words, they were entertaining the idea that sex is a necessary evil. It's not really about pleasure. It's not about relational intimacy. It's not about having that uh, moment of, of the one flesh relationship. It's, it's necessary for the propagation of the human race. But holy people, righteous people, wise people move beyond the sexual relationship and live Avoiding it as much as possible. Now, you might be tempted to snicker about that, but it's possible that there are people in this very room who believe that sex is only to be used for procreation, if at all. And I want to tell you that that's not only unbiblical, according to this text, it's actually a danger to you. It's a dangerous way to think. You're allowed to say amen to that, by the way. Well, why is that? Well, this passage is bookended. It begins and ends with two reasons why abstinence in marriage is a danger. First of all, notice verse 2. He says, because of the temptation of sexual immorality, right? In other words, if you're avoiding sex in marriage, you run the risk of inflaming the passions of the sinful nature. I mean, it's obvious, right? If you choose to reject the gift that God has given you in marriage, then you're creating a vulnerability for yourself and for your spouse to the desires of the sinful nature. The temptation to seek sexual satisfaction outside the bounds of your relationship with your spouse is going to be all the stronger. And notice that that vulnerability, it's not just your internal temptation towards sexual immorality. It actually goes further than that. Look at verse 5. He says, if you choose to abstain from sex with your spouse, Satan actually is going to attempt to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So what that's saying is, not only do you have this inner compulsion 
that's been twisted by the presence of sin. It's not that the sexual desires that God's given us are sinful in and of themselves. It's that the sin nature has come and taken them and twisted them and perverted them so that we have to fight against the desires of the flesh. But it's not just that. If you choose to say no to the gift of sexual intimacy in marriage, you have an enemy who thinks strategically and who observes what is going on and who recognizes that he has a chance to go after you in that way. He says, well, that's the easiest way to get this guy. That's the easiest way to get that girl. They're not intimate with their spouse. They're not enjoying the gift that God's given them. Their self-control is faltering. I bet it would be really easy to entrap them in this way and ruin their lives. Now, that's not all there is to say. We're not done yet by any means, but it's true. It's relevant. Abstaining from sex is a danger in marriage. It's going to make you vulnerable to temptations that, you wouldn't, that wouldn't be as powerful if you were enjoying this gift. Obviously, there are two, uh, there are two types of temptations. Obviously, the first one is uh, the temptation towards sexual immorality. Uh, sleeping with someone who's not, some, not your spouse, viewing pornography, uh, perverse daydreaming, self-gratification, the list goes on and on. Now, that's not to say that the temptation to sin in this way goes away if you are married and you're sleeping with your spouse, but it does make a difference. So let me just draw out a, a, an application from that, that this reality, if it's true that if you're married and you're abstaining from intimacy in marriage, that that's a danger to you, then we have to recognize that it's also a danger for people who are not married. Like, they have to deal with this as well. Next week, we'll talk more about the gift of singleness. Jesus was single. Paul was single. He may have been married at one time, but he's single when he writes this letter. He actually prefers it, and he gives some really powerful reasons why it's a better life for the Christian than the married life. We'll talk about that more in the coming weeks. But make no mistake... Even Paul had to discipline himself and be on guard against the temptation to sexual sin just like anybody else. He says in another place, I discipline my body, I bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I've preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. So if you're single and you want to live like a Christian, that means you're, you're not seeking sexual gratification of any kind. And that's difficult to do because the world is sending a tidal wave of cultural pressure against you every day in the opposite direction. And there are going to be moments when the pressure seems to be too much. You're in a vulnerable, dangerous spot. And I know you know that. And that's where, church, that's where we come in. To expect our single brothers and sisters to stand alone against the onslaught of the world is cruel. They need a community of individuals who are committed to sexual wholeness that can strengthen them and encourage them and remind them of the grace and the goodness of God. In other words, church, they need a church family. They don't just need a church event that they go to for one hour or two every week. They need a community. By the way, the same is true for our teenage and college age kids. Maybe even more so. This might seem like a tangent. I know it might seem like a tangent because we're talking about sex and marriage, but this is absolutely an application of this. And it's been on my mind after attending two high school graduations this weekend. Our teenagers are exposed to this danger every day as well. They're this this constant pressure from the world and from the flesh and from the enemy about sexual immorality. Folks, parents, it's cruel for us to give our teenagers a smartphone with carte blanche to look at whatever they want and then just walk away and act as if they can live purely with that tool in their pocket. It's cruel of us to expect them to stand for God and embrace a lifestyle of sexual wholeness when they are inundated with the culture of the world four or five days a week for eight or more hours a day, and then, and then we don't really provide them any more help the rest of the time. They need us, church. If we want our teenagers to navigate this danger, this vulnerability to sexual sin, then among other things, they're going to need to spend significant amounts of time around 
people who love the Lord, who have the Holy Spirit, and who are committed to living a sexually pure life. People in their own stage of life, people in their peer group that encourage them to walk in obedience and fight the temptations of the enemy. So parents, that's on us. We need to create opportunities for our teenagers to participate in the life of the community of the church. That can't fall back solely on the youth pastor. That's unnecessary. All it, it's, it's not that complicated. Let's just give them, get them together so that they can encourage each other. Let's give them some chances to form relationships with people who love the Lord. You see, when we're abstaining from sex in marriage, that exposes us to a danger of the temptation to immorality, and that's a danger that all single people are also exposed to as well. But there are two ways, as I said, that abstaining from sex and marriage gives the devil a foothold, an opportunity to tempt us. And the second way is a little less obvious, and it's a little bit more unique to the, the marriage relationship, and that's this. When we choose to go against God's word and to deny ourselves the gift that God has given us in the covenant of marriage, the temptation is there toward bitterness, envy, and ungodly anger. Now, some of you have experienced this. If you choose to abstain from sex in marriage, you're opening yourself up and your spouse to an increased likelihood of bitterness and envy. And what's really sinister about that is that it tends to, to, to send your marriage relationship into sort of a death spiral. I mean, here's how it, here's how it happens. You're, you're not sleeping together. You're not being intimate with one another. That creates an opportunity for ungodly anger and, and irritability and bitterness toward one another. You're unkind to each other. You start to kind of pick on each other. You're sort short with each other. You take each other for granted. Now it's even less likely that you're going to sleep together. You get angrier, more bitter. Then the temptation to immorality is even stronger after that time. You know that with all that anger and that, that bad feeling boiling up inside you that it would just be one click away to look at a pornographic image and feel better about yourself. You start to live as though you don't need your spouse you grow more and more distant, and so it goes. Stretch that process, that cycle, that death spiral out over the course of 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And unfortunately, many of you don't even need to imagine the impact because you're living it. It will kill your marriage. Now, again, there's more to say about it, but don't be deceived. Abstaining from sex in marriage in the first place is a danger. But notice in the second place that intimacy in marriage is a duty. Intimacy in marriage is a duty. Look at verse 3, for example. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights and the wife her husband. I think it's pretty clear what Paul is saying, right? Notice he doesn't say anything about having children, even though sex and having children do go hand in glove. It's more than that. Sex and marriage is a duty. Where does that come from? Is Paul getting that from the surrounding culture? No, the surrounding culture, they didn't, they didn't live this way. Sex and marriage didn't necessarily go together in a Roman colony like Corinth. You were supposed to have legitimate children with your wife and then go find sexual fulfillment somewhere else. So no, he doesn't get it from his culture. Where does Paul get this idea? He gets it from his Bible. In fact, it comes from the 21st chapter of the book of Exodus. Now, keep in mind, uh, the law spelled out in the book of Exodus that Paul was drawing from is designed to uphold the justice and the mercy and the righteousness and the goodness of God in the midst of an unjust world. And one of the things that Moses addresses there in Exodus 21 is this uh, unfortunate reality that I'm sure was very common in the ancient Near East of a husband who literally goes to his friend and, and buys one of his friend's daughters as a slave, and that woman becomes that man's wife. He marries her, and then he grows tired of her and sort of ignores her and goes off and marries another woman. That is the reality that he's addressing in Exodus 21. And Mo here's what Moses says. Even a woman like that, 
And you can imagine, in the ancient world, a woman in that situation would probably not have enjoyed a lot of rights. But Moses says, even a woman in that situation, rejected, replaced, didn't have to put up with that situation. She had rights, and one of those rights was, frankly, sexual. She had marital rights. She had the right to expect her husband to sleep with her. In other words, if a slave, even if a slave woman had, uh, had, had the right to expect that the husband who paid for her give her her due sexually, and by the way, if he didn't, Moses said she could just walk away. She could divorce him without any penalty whatsoever. If, if a woman in that situation had rights, how much more a wife, or a husband for that matter, in a healthy, monogamous, marital relationship? Sex in marriage is a right that should not be denied. In verse 5, his language is even stronger. He says, don't deprive one another. Literally, that word means to cheat. Don't cheat on your spouse. You say, I, I've never cheated on my spouse. I would never cheat on my spouse. But for Paul, that means abstaining from sex in marriage, neglecting your spouse sexually. See, what that means is that choosing to withhold yourself from your spouse is tantamount to stealing from them. Sex in marriage is a duty. It's not just about getting pregnant and having children. It's part of the marital covenant. It's certainly not a bargaining chip that you use against your spouse to get them to do the things that you want them to do. Did you hear me? It's a right. It's a duty. It's an obligation. It's something that you owe your spouse. I'm not making it sound romantic enough. I'm just trying to be clear. Now, before we move on to our third main idea, let me just deal with an objection because I know a lot of you are sitting there and you're kind of squirming because you're thinking, you know, my situation makes this really hard to read because you don't know what I'm dealing with. My spouse hurt me. He looks at porn all the time. She slept with a coworker. He has physically abused me. I'm hurt. I can barely look at him, and you're telling me that you need to sleep, that, 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 that I need to sleep with him? I mean, what? How can I? Okay. Take a breath. First of all, not all these situations are exactly the same. There's a lot of variety. They're not the same. And I can't get into the specifics because every situation is different. We don't have the time. Frankly, I don't have the imagination to understand and, and come up with all the different scenarios that you may or may not be dealing with in your marriage or your friend may or may not be dealing with in her or his marriage. But there is a difference between the kind of difficulties every married couple faces. You know, you're squeezing the toothpaste tube from the bottom, she's squeezing the toothpaste tube from the middle, you can't get along, okay, get over it, buy two different toothpaste tubes, move on with your day, all right? There's a difference between that sort of thing and the kind of things that involve some, uh, one spouse, one party breaking his or her marriage vows. There's something different about pornography or sexting or adultery or abuse. Each one of these is a violation of the marriage vow. And if you're dealing with those, then you're going to need some help. Do Listen, listen. Do not allow shame to prevent you from seeking the help that you need. You need counsel from a godly brother or sister. You need your church family to gather around and help you with that. But here's what I will say, friends. If for that reason or for some other reason you are not enjoying the gift of intimacy in your marriage, then your marriage is not okay. Your marriage is not in the place that, is, that God wants it to be. You don't have a healthy marriage if you're not fulfilling this duty to each other. Here's what you're going to be tempted to do. Settle. Brush it under the rug. Enter into a sort of peace treaty where you're really enemies within the same household, but you've decided to lay the arms aside and you're, you're not going to fight each other. You're going to live together as roommates. Don't do that. Don't kick the can down the road because... Sex in marriage is a duty, and friends, that's just going to make it worse. Find the help that you need. 
because sex in marriage is a duty. You say, well, are there any circumstances in which we should be taking a break? And Paul says, yes, there's one exception to the rule. Do not deprive one another except by agreement, that is, both spouses agree, for a limited time, that is, it should be temporary, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. That is, there needs to be a spiritual purpose. By the way, he says in verse 6, that's only a concession. Like, you don't have to take these breaks at all if you don't want. But you can if you feel like you need to do that. What's, what's normal, what makes the most sense, is when a married couple is sleeping together regularly because sex in marriage is a duty. So let me ask you a question, those of you who are married. Are you cheating on your spouse? Are you defrauding her? Are you stealing from him? You say, well, I, I just haven't felt up to it. Okay, but did you agree to take a break? How long has it been? What's the purpose? Is it so you can both get close to God is it, or is it for some other reason? See, abstinence in marriage is a danger and sex in marriage is a duty. Now, why is that? What's the basis for what Paul's instructing us to do today? Notice in the third place that mutual ownership in marriage is a delight. Here's what I mean by that. Mutual ownership is, means that if you're married, each of you belongs to the other. Each of you is under the authority of the other. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 is the heart of this passage. You'll notice it begins with a single short word. It begins with the word for. Do you see it? That's a word that we don't use very much in, in normal conversation. It seems kind of formal, but it's a very important word in the Bible, especially in a, a discourse like a letter or a sermon. In the Greek language, that word translated for signifies the, the grounds or the basis or the explanation for what's gone before. So that means that verse 4 serves as the explanation, the basis, the grounds for Paul's teaching regarding sex and marriage. And what he says in verse 4, scholars agree is something that absolutely no one else in Paul's day is saying. If you can believe it, there were a lot of people in antiquity who were talking about sex, just like today. But those whose writings survive said nothing like what Paul says here. Let's read it again. He says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, let that teaching sink in for a second. In our day, that comes across as very radical, very offensive even to us, right? Why is that? Because when it comes to the topic of sexuality in our day, what's emphasized is autonomy. Like, I, this is my body. I get to do with it what I want. There's, and Paul says, listen, you don't have absolute authority over your body. There's also your spouse to consider. In Paul's day, it was even more radical for him to say this, but for a completely different reason. Just about everybody, especially in the Greco-Roman world, would have said that the wife is under the authority of her husband. Uh, the paterfamilias is what he was called. He owned everything. He had the final say over everyone. No one else in the family, listen, was even allowed to own property, even his adult sons, until he died. This guy had absolute authority, and he was certainly in charge of his wife. That's the way the Romans thought. That's the way the Greeks thought. But Paul says, hey, if you're a wife, sure, your body isn't just yours. It's also your husband's. But guess what? And no one was saying this. This was radical. If you're a husband, if you're that head of household, you don't even have absolute authority over your own body. There's your wife to consider. She has power over you, sir. She has authority over you. You both belong to each other. You say, where does he get that? I mean, nobody else was saying this. Where does Paul get this? He gets it from 
The Bible. Think about what Song of Solomon says. I know you probably have been doing your devotions out of Song of Solomon recently. But here's Song of Solomon. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. See, in ancient times, the wife belonged to the husband, basically property. In modern times, each person is autonomous and belongs to him or herself. But Paul says, no, God is better than, than both of those things. That God's word is so much better than what the, the world comes up with. In God's mind, if you're married, you don't belong to yourself. The wife isn't the property of the husband. No, you both belong to each other. This is so much better. He's saying when you are lying there with your spouse, the purpose of that moment is not for you to serve yourself. The purpose of that moment is for you to serve your spouse. This is why sex is a gift. It's a gift from God. Yes, it's a gift to you. Yes, but it's not a gift that God gives to you so you can use it for yourself. It's a gift that he wants you to give your spouse. You don't force your spouse to give you something. That's not a gift, is it? That would be using the body that belongs to your spouse, your body, to do something that your spouse would never want to have done. You don't keep something from your spouse that actually belongs to them. You recognize that you are there in that moment to serve your spouse. You're there for them. Listen, those of you who are single, young people, those of you who are newly married, if you were to ask an old timer, and they actually were willing to talk about it, they would all tell you, listen, when it comes to marital intimacy, it is much better to give than to receive. What do you think could happen in your relationship with your spouse if every single day, instead of talking about your needs, I need this, I need that, you began to focus on your spouse's needs? You see, if you embrace this reality, if you live this out, this idea that your body is not your own but rests under the authority of your spouse, then your sexual relationship with your spouse becomes a powerful picture of the self-sacrificial serving love that Jesus has for his church. See, Jesus doesn't just use us and then toss us aside. He covenants with us, he remains with us, he serves us, he cares for us, and he shepherds us all at great cost to himself. He lays down his very life, not because he needs something from us, he doesn't, but because of his generous and his merciful character, because he wants to share himself with us. And he desires that we share his glory and are able to enjoy him in close, unbroken fellowship forever. And, and folks, here's what's so wonderful about this teaching when we place it in its larger context. Think about the people to whom Paul is writing this letter. Think about what he said just a few verses before. What were they? At one time, adulterers, immoral, idolaters, homosexuals, thieves, swindlers, greedy, drunkards, revilers. He says, such were some of you. But something happened. Something changed them. These people were at one time so broken that their sin made up the core of their identity. They had a past. They had a sordid sexual history. Those memories, those scars were still there. But because they had been washed, because they had been set apart, because they had been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, and their guilt had been taken away, and their fellowship to God restored, and they'd been given the Holy Spirit of God, even, listen, even the most sensitive, the most personal, the most intensely emotional part of their human relationships could be changed to give glory to God. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ today, can you see from this passage the goodness of God shining through, even in this personal matter, can you see his wisdom can you see that he doesn't want you to, he doesn't want to just take away your joy. He wants you to have joy to the full. Don't you want to belong to this guy? Don't you see that your desires have been a cruel master? 
that sexual sin is a destructive monster? Don't you want to be rescued from its clutches and forgiven and cleansed and brought to a place where even this part of your life brings glory to God and brings you greater joy? Yes, even in this area, especially in this area, you need Jesus. Friends, this passage is very clear. Sex is a gift, and that's why abstinence in marriage is a danger. That's why sex in marriage is a duty. That's why mutual ownership in marriage is a delight. And yet, I imagine many of you are sitting there and you say, in my mind, I agree with the Apostle Paul. I agree with what the Scripture teaches. And yet, when I look at my own life, when I look at my own marriage, I think, man, I do not know how to get from where I am to where Paul is saying I ought to be. And so before we conclude, let me just leave you with a few practical applications from this passage. And these are in no particular order, and I realize they're just scratching the surface. But first of all, if you're single, you need, you must commit yourself to reserving sex for marriage. It's not designed as a way to please yourself. It's designed to be enjoyed in the context of a full, permanent, exclusive marriage commitment into a marriage covenant. Believe that, even though it's difficult to do. That means you're going to need to be intentional. You're going to have to avoid situations that give rise to temptation. You're going to have to participate in the community of the faithful. Lean on your church family. What I'm saying, single person, is don't take your dating life and your church life and keep them separate from each other. Bring them together. Spend time around believers who share your commitments because the world and your flesh and the devil, they see the way that you live. They see the vulnerabilities, and they will go after you in this area. Second application, if you're married, remember, remember that relational problems will follow you into the bedroom. Relational problems will follow you into the bedroom. In other words, if you take this passage and you say, okay, very simple, let's go do what this passage is telling us to do, and you don't deal with the stuff that's causing you not to do it, I'm just telling you right now, okay, very practically, that's not going to work very well. Because this area of life, and I think this is God's wisdom, this is one of those areas of life where you cannot fake it with your spouse. You cannot be there and, and, and not deal with the difficulties that are existing between you and your spouse. You've got to deal with those relational problems. If there's anger there, if there's bitterness there, if there's disappointment there, if there's lies and, and, and if there's manipulation, that needs to be dealt with in order for you to enjoy the gift that God's given you. Relational problems, you must remember, will follow you into the bedroom. Application number three, don't underestimate the power of a genuine, humble request for forgiveness. Do not underestimate the power of a genuine, humble request for forgiveness. I'm not talking about, oh, I'm sorry if I hurt you, but no. You know the difference. Admit what you've done. Get specific. Avoid the excuses and the reasons. Ad admit the motives. Some of you today need to find a quiet place immediately after this service. Get alone with your spouse and say, hey, I'm sorry. I, I need you to forgive me because I've been cruel. I've been selfish. I've been impatient. It, it, it may not even have anything to do with sex. But it's preventing you from enjoying the gift that God has given you because if we don't reconcile, then we aren't going to be able to enjoy intimacy the way that God intended. If you've been withholding yourself from your spouse, you need to open your mouth and ask forgiveness. If you've been using sex as a bargaining chip, you have to ask forgiveness. Don't underestimate the power of a humble request for forgiveness. Application number four. Listen, this is so important. It's time, guys. It's time to say no to pornography. We all know that in many relationships, that's the one thing that's standing in between you and your spouse. 
in this day and age with our access to technology and all these millions of images and videos, it's time, folks, it's time to say no, it's not neutral, it's not innocent, it's time to get radical, it's time to amputate that sin, it's time to kill that sin. It's time to get some help, it's time to get some accountability, some encouragement from your brothers and sisters in Christ. That sin is like a fungus, it thrives in the darkness. And what I'm telling you is, if you expose it to the light, you'll see very quickly it begins to die. Tell your brothers in your community group, ask them for help. How can you be one flesh with your spouse when your mind is filled with that filth? How can you say your body is under the authority of your spouse when you've given it away to pixels on a screen? How can you ask him, how can you ask her to be open and intimate with you when you've broken their trust like that? Let's fight it, friends. Not, not by shame, not by hanging our head, but by rejoicing in the victory of Christ and allowing the power of a stronger affection to take over our hearts. It's time to do battle. It's time to gain the victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's time to say no to porn. Let today be the day. Application number five. Forget about your performance and learn how to have a transparent conversation with your spouse. Forget about yourself and learn how to have a transparent conversation with your spouse. You're, you're married to that one person. So all the books and all the videos, they're going to be of limited help in comparison with just a conversation with that person that you're married to. You say, well, I don't understand women. You know, they're so difficult to understand. Listen, you don't have to worry about that. You've got one woman to understand. You can make a little bit of progress on that. I don't understand men. You don't have to understand men. You've got one man. Learn about your spouse. It's okay that you don't have it all figured out. In fact, that's God's design too, if you think about it. We're not supposed to be figuring this out before we get married. It's supposed to happen within the loving, committed covenant of marriage. It's okay. You, of course you don't have it all figured out. Forget about yourself. Forget about how you look and how you sound. Just be willing to not, don't take yourself so seriously. Take the time to learn together. Don't assume you know what is enjoyable to your spouse. Don't think simplistically about it. You have to learn about that person. Forget yourself and talk to your spouse. Application number six, be patient and refuse to give up. Be patient and refuse to give up. To give up. If the Corinthians with all their problems could please Christ in their marriages, then it's possible for you as well. You never know what God can do. Never give up. Finally, you might need some help. You might need some help. This is one of the reasons why we encourage everyone in our church to get into a community group because we can't just get up in front of the entire church and say, excuse me, can I just tell you all what, what specific problems my spouse and I are having? That doesn't make sense to do that, all right? We're not going to do that. So no, we have these smaller groups, these community groups, and we can get to know those people in an intimate setting and we can share some of our struggles with them and ask for their help. It's just a handful in the room. Maybe you need a little bit more help. You need some counseling help from someone who knows the Word of God. Most of the time, people seek counseling as an absolute last resort, and then they wonder why it doesn't help. How about being proactive in seeking that counsel? What typically happens to me as a pastor, and, and I haven't even been doing this that long, but I've noticed a pattern, is that people... Uh, they call me when there's absolutely no other thing that they can do. And they say, they throw their hands up and say, I have done everything else. I guess I'll call the pastor. And or they've already decided what they want to do and they just want it to look like they tried. And what they do is they tell me about 10% of what's really going on. And then they make themselves look a little bit better than what's really going on. And they say, okay, well, what do you think I should do? And they've already kind of set me up to say what they want me to say. Okay, that doesn't work. 
it's a total waste of time. You, you might need to go to a pastor or a counselor who understands God's word and, and tell them a little bit more than 10% of what's going on. You might need to be open and honest. You might need to say some things that don't paint yourself in the best light. You say, I can't afford to go to counseling. That's going to cost money. Listen, sell something. Donate some plasma. This is your marriage, man. If your doctor, listen, if your doctor came to you and said, hey, you've got cancer. If we act now, we can get rid of it. But it'll probably cost you about $20,000 even with all the insurance. You would say, you know what, that hurts, that's painful, but guess what, let's do it. It's, it's my only option. Listen, for your marriage, this may be your only option. Just spend the money. Just do what you need to do. By the way, counseling is a lot cheaper than divorce. Sorry. <laughs> but it's true, and you know it. Because what I want to say, though, is, is honestly, your marriage is worth it. And the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is worth it. And so what I'm asking you to do is, is to actually make it a priority in your life. And instead of pointing the finger at your spouse, instead of pointing the finger at your circumstances, instead of pointing your finger at mom and dad who raised you a certain way, instead of pointing the finger at somebody else, it's time to say, you know what, I'm going to take responsibility for what God has given me. And, and even though I can't control what everybody else does, I'm going to go after what God has given me to do. And I'm going to, I'm going to accept the gift that God's given me. See, sex was never designed to be filthy. It's not just an appetite. It's not a way for us to express who we really are. No, it's a gift. It's a gift that God has given us to enjoy in marriage. It's a gift from God. So let's receive that gift in the covenant of marriage. Would you pray with me? Father, I want to thank you for uh, the clear direction of, of your word. And, and even in this moment, Lord, I, I know my own heart, my my own mind and, and the minds of, of everybody listening, we're, we're kind of running through what you've said and, and then we're matching that up and comparing it with the things that we already think. And the temptation is there to, to take what you've said and, and sort of sand off the sharp edges and make it seem like we're already doing what we're supposed to do when your Holy Spirit is making clear that we need to repent and we need to ask forgiveness and maybe make a change. So, Father, in this moment, I pray that you would prevent the enemy from taking the seed of the word away from our hearts like so many birds. pray that you would allow your word to sink deep into our hearts in this moment. I pray that you would prevent the cares of this world, the trials, the difficulties, the suffering to, uh, from, from choking out the life that your word gives. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would allow us in this moment, would strengthen us in this moment to walk in obedience to you. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you